Please listen carefully. 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 Hello, and welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, where two reasonable social scientists discuss important topics by focusing on just the facts and none of the unneeded opinions and biases. I'm Allison Dagnus, and I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. How are you doing today, Allie? I am feeling great, Lawrence. It is fall, and fall is busting out all over, which means you know what time of the year it is. Football! It's time to throw the old pigskin. It's time (laughs) to put on our raccoon coats and grab the pennants and go out and wave them and wave the home team and say, huzzah! Number 45 is the bee's knees, and there he goes. That's exactly right. Yes, as you can tell, I am not really one for the sports, but it is that's I really like fall sports because it means it's fall. I look for markers throughout the year, and one of the my favorite markers is the Super Bowl. Yeah. Because it's always after the gluttony that is the holiday season. Um, I have punishing abstinence. From New Year's until the Super Bowl. And the Super Bowl is like my break in my diet. <laughs> and so I am always very much looking forward to the 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 beer. Let's start with beer, um, which is delicious. And I drink it like twice a year because I have two and you can just hear it like rolling around in your stomach. Um, and then all of the very, very fattening food, the, you know, delicious delicious fattening food. So I love the Super Bowl, which means I love football, which means I love sports. I'm here for the fall sports. Is Pete a big football fan? Pete is not uh, at all. In fact, he has a a running gag with Lance Bailey about how um, whenever, because everybody assumes that he's a football guy and they say, who's your team? And he says the Ticats from Hamilton, Ontario. (laughs) And he just goes, he goes on like a tear and he knows about them and he talks about the Grey Cup and he can talk for a surprisingly (laughs) long time about Canadian football. Um, No, he is a baseball and hockey guy. Who are his uh, Who are his teams in baseball and hockey? Oh, I mean, hockey, Capitals, forever and ever and always. Baseball, right. Orioles, forever and ever and always. So, I don't know a lot about sports, but I do know that the Orioles are not great. Yeah, but I'll always have a soft spot for the O's. Uh, for all of my childhood, they were the only team in town because the Senators relocated to Texas, I think like a decade before I was even born. And then the Nationals didn't arrive until like 2005. So I love the Nats now, but um, those will always be my number two. And I love, love, love Camden Yards. Love going to Camden Yards. Camden Yards is fantastic. Ugh. When it was first built, I went there with uh, my four best friends from high school and one of our moms. And... um, I was so excited because there were five, we were in our very early 20s. So there were five women in our early 20s and one woman in her 50s, and we all found something to eat. And I thought (laughs) that is, you know what? That's a good ballpark right there. That is a good ballpark. It is like the quintessential ballpark. You walk in on that, I think it's called Utah Street with the warehouse. And yeah, totally. You see the, you know, you can see the outfield. You Mm -hmm. just walk in. It's just so, it's an amazing ballpark. So yeah, it is. But I'm glad as a Caps fan, I'm a big Caps fan. They were, uh, Waiting forever for the Washington football team to win a championship. And of course, that hasn't happened. But in the meantime, I've watched the Capitals and the Nationals win championships. And that's been amazing. Oh, I mean, you have no idea what it was like 
for the Dagnus household when the Capitals won the championship. I mean, when they Do won tell. the stand. Oh, it was, <laughs> it was a lot. First of all, when the Capitals get close, uh, and they get close because of, lot, of one yeah. Alex Ovechkin. Yes. Um, and uh, and so I, I know about the Ovechkam. I know quite a bit about this one this one young Russian. Uh, <laughs> I know a lot about him. But um, whenever they get close, that's when the you know, like the the habits and the ticks and the superstition sets in. So it's a lot of like just wearing one pair of red underwear a lot um, <laughs> and growing a beard for some reason and not getting your hair cut. And for me, you know, I mean, we've been married for 20 something years. And so like, fine, you want to try and embarrass me. It's impossible. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm impervious to embarrassment. You want to try and embarrass teenage girls, though. That is easy pickings. So, yeah. yeah, So Pete goes out when it is capitals, you know, they're in the final, whatever it's called. And uh, let me tell you something. That is some good time right there because Pete (laughs) is more than happy to just drop trow anywhere to go. Look, I'm representing for the capitals. And there he is wearing his red underwear (laughs) in the middle of Target. I'm like, oh, honey, we're going to get arrested again. Pete doesn't strike me. As the kind of guy that's superstitious and like he's such, it seems like such a buttoned up, like straight laced military. Very guy. buttoned that up. Seems funny Very buttoned though. up. Yep. Yeah. And but let me <laughs> this tell is you one thing. When when it comes to the Capitals, whew, yes. And so we were uh, we were at the beach when the Capitals won the Stanley Cup, and um, and we went back and we the four of us stood together. To watch, like I had gone to sleep and the girls came and woke me up. They're like, mom, it's going to happen. And so I went out into the living room and the four of us stood together and held Pete as he cried, cried like a baby uh, because they finally had won the Stanley Cup. And he was just moved to tears. And then the the texts from all of his friends, you know, I mean, it was this was something this really was something very deeply, deeply powerful to him. So it's clearly moving to people who are fans and I'm not a huge hockey fan. I'm a Washington fan. So if you're, if you're from Washington, you know, like I said, I still love the O's because they were a part of the Washington sports fabric for so long. Yeah. And um, there was something even deeply moving for somebody who's not a huge hockey fan because, you know, you watching all the celebrations and people spilling into, you know, all the different areas of DC and the greater DC metro area and, and just being happy. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, those are, that's where I grew up. And so, you know, seeing all that was just incredibly, it was incredibly moving. I mean, I was moved to tears just because it was like, we've been waiting so long for the other team, the Washington football team to do something. And here come these other upstarts, the hockey team and the baseball team. And, and it was just, it was really joyous watching uh, Alex Ovechkin drinking various liquors out of his, uh, out of the Stanley Cup. Out of the Stanley Cup. Did you guys go to the parade? No, of course we didn't go to a parade. Are you kidding me? No (laughs) way. Not if there's, if there's no real potty there. No, thank you. I don't think so. Um, for, for some, I can't even remember what it was, like a birthday or something like that. I I was going to get, I was going to get Pete tickets to, it had to have been either a Caps game. It, It had to have been a Caps game. And, um, and it was, super sold out or something like that. And so I was like, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to buy scalped tickets. And it felt like very illegal because I think it was super (laughs) illegal. And I managed to 
hook up with the person who was even more scared of like selling illegal tickets than I was of buying illegal tickets. And I think it was like <laughs> two Jews talking online of like, oh, no, I don't know. This feels wrong. It feels very wrong. And in the end, like nothing happened because <laughs> both of us just totally psyched each other out. We were like, nope, we can't do this. You know, and we were convinced the other person was like an FBI agent or something like that. He was really a very, very nice guy. And, um, you know, I'm sure that had we just met each other, we probably would be friends. Um, but yeah, there was no way I was going to buy. Like, <laughs> That sounds like me and my buddy, Jonathan. We went to a Bullets game way back in the day before they were the Wizards. I was going to say when they were still called the Bullets. Yeah. Sure. And uh, they were terrible. I think like George Murison was their favorite player who, or their best player. Was, like this you know, giant man who couldn't barely play basketball. But um, anyway, so we got really bored like halfway through the game because they were just terrible. We went outside to see if anybody would be willing to pay for them. And we were such nervous dorks that we, we walked up to the cops and we said, are we allowed to scalp our tickets? <laughs> the cop looked at us like, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> no, no way. <laughs> we are, we are masters of crime. The you shame, and I. the yeah. shame in that cop's eye. <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to arrest you for being an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing that isn't illegal because I'd be serving hard time for a very long time. <laughs> Three consecutive sentences that... <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever play sports growing up? Oh, God, no. Um, absolutely positively <laughs> not. Not even like informally, like in the streets, the hard streets of uh, your of, private school of, neighborhood? Of DC. <laughs> um, no, I um, I took jogging at Murray and, um, and barely passed uh, because I would walk with my friend Rachel. I would walk to... You took jogging? Uh huh. That was a that was like the PE requirement. It was called jogging, and we wouldn't jog. We would walk to highs, get nachos. That was when I did my junior year in Denmark. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I would get nachos and a frozen coke, and then I would walk back, and that was my jogging. That was my PE. So you walk to get frozen <laughs> nachos, nachos and a frozen coke. Come on, that's exactly what that is. What PE is to me. In order to um, jog, I would walk to get nachos. Yes. <laughs> Yes. And, and, you know, I, I, I run now and I go to, uh, when it's not COVID, I go to two gyms, but when it is COVID, one of them is basically covered in germs and uh, a lot of people who don't take it seriously. So I don't go there, but one of the, one of the gyms I do go to and it's, there are very, very few people there. So I feel comfortable, uh, going there in the morning. And, um, and that is only because if I don't, um, then those nachos and frozen Cokes are going to catch up <laughs> to me and I'm going to look like a manatee. So, um, so that's really the don't only you reason run outside like really early in the morning. I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So nobody could see me. I look like yeah. I should be pulling a beer truck. Like I look, I look like a, I look like a Clydesdale. Like most people, when they run, they look like a gazelle. Like you know, their hair is flowing. No, I, I look like I'm having a heart attack. If you were to, if I were to run during the daytime, people would pull over and ask if I needed assistance. <laughs> Call an ambulance. I know, really, they would. She's having a seizure. They would. They would. Yeah, I'm, I'm like bright red, and I'm just, I'm like drooling, and I'm going really slowly. So it's just terrible. It's embarrassing. So I have to go under the cover of darkness. <laughs> Which means very, very early in the morning. So you you were in a jogging class. In I was in a jogging Anything class. Anything else? Yeah, um, I faked an injury to get out of volleyball, but that is <laughs> what injury did you fake? I faked a knee injury, and the and the coach. This is a true story. The coach like totally knew I was faking it, and did. Do you remember that in Seinfeld when George Costanza's mother in law like kept 
pushing him like, oh, I know you're lying. And he just kept going with it. Like I did that. I was like, nope, I definitely need physical therapy. (laughs) And so I ended up in physical therapy. You went to physical therapy to get out of PE? (laughs) I did. (laughs) That's pretty much my illustrious career. But um, Pete and I have a long history in sports. But I'll get to that after you tell me your career in sports. Because I have a feeling yours is much more much more successful than mine. I don't know how successful it was or impressive it was, but I did play more than you did. I played Little League Baseball, played Little League Football, and then played high school football and uh, was a tight end, which meant that I did a lot of blocking, but also would run out and catch passes every once in a while. Okay. And so, yeah, that's my football career. I played uh, four years of high school and uh, had a great time. We had a really good team played with a lot of really good players and played with a lot of under a lot of really great coaches, one of which we're going to talk to today, which is Mickey Thompson. So, yay, um, that is very cool. Is he going to tell us like great stories about you (laughs) on the football team? Um, I I doubt that'll be a centerpiece of our discussion. Okay. uh, (laughs) Okay. Did now did Sarah play sports too? She did. She played volleyball. Mm-hmm. And she was also... So, she did not fake a knee injury to get out of playing volleyball. No, she wanted to be on the court. Yeah. Okay. That seems uh, curious. And she um, was a cheerleader. Oh, stop it. That's repulsive. Seriously, you were a football player. I told you. And I told you this. was a cheerleader. I think I blocked it out. You guys are a John Cheever story. I've That's told so you this. Cute. I was the captain of the football team. Okay, wait. You did not. Because I, I would have been making fun of you guys. <laughs> Shut up. I mean, I was a captain. There was more than one captain, but... Uh, <gasps> you were the captain of the football team and she was a cheerleader? And she was a cheerleader. Oh, my... God, are you guys going to dress as that for Halloween for the rest of your lives? <laughs> if I could fit in my uniform, <laughs> my friends. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is so, capital A, adorable. Do yeah, you have pictures? I want you know, a link to pictures in the show notes. The look on yes, your face are, doesn't folks. say adorable. Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, as a way to promote uh, their volleyball team. Um, to, to, to pump up attendance because as a football player, I had a little bit more uh, visibility at the school. Mm-hmm. I went to a pep rally and gave a speech about how awesome the volleyball team was. And at the very end of it, I had my, my now wife, who was then my girlfriend, uh, come out and rip my warmups off to show that underneath I was wearing one of their volleyball uniforms oh no which were very tight spandex (laughs) oh no wow um we're gonna link to that in the show notes also (laughs) i wish i had pictures of that i wish you had pictures Uh, of that are you kidding me her and her Uh, sister katie who came up and they you know had the breakaway warm-ups on oh sure uh, (laughs) that is did it work did more people start going to the volleyball games i don't know i think more people were very suspicious of me after that but uh i'm very suspicious of you right now (laughs) yes did many weird things like that so that is so cute and i'm now wondering about your kids are your well okay so the other day your three older kids were here and i was asking about their uh sports careers Mm -hmm. because they were just so freaking adorable (laughs) and so your son was lamenting the fact that there is no dodgeball team yet <laughs> yes he and be a pro and dodgeball player <laughs> he really does and he's very serious about it so what is it going to take 
to get a dodgeball team going in Shippensburg, Pennsylvania. That's what I want to know. Yeah, he loves dodgeball. He also, he does like these uh, martial arts classes, which he loves. Um, my girls play soccer. They were my, telling me. Yeah. They were so cute. Oh, my yeah. gosh. They do ballet and so. Aww. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> that is so cute. Ugh. Oh, yeah. They're very cute. And all of my kids, even at this early stage in their lives, are much more accomplished in their sporting careers than I was. And our two guests today are also much more accomplished than I could ever dream to be in sports. So we're going to talk to Tina Hill, who is the athletic director at Wilson College. And she's going to tell us all about the NCAA and the different rules and regulations of collegiate sports. We are also being joined by Mickey Thompson, who is the head football coach at Stonebridge High School in Ashburn, Virginia, where he has won a whopping 83% of his games, 16 district championships, 13 regional championships, and two state championships. He'll give us great insight into what it's like to run a football program and to lead young men at a really important time in their lives. These should be two great conversations. We are going to be joined by Mickey Thompson first, coming up next. Mickey Thompson, welcome to the show. Appreciate you having me. Could you begin by telling us a little bit of the role that football played in your life when you were growing up? Well, honestly, I I wasn't, uh, I just played a lot of different sports and then um, football just kind of fell in my lap, actually. Um, How old were you when you first started to play? um, I didn't start playing until I was in high school. Um, I played one one year of youth football and then I played high school football. My coach then was Jerry Smith and... uh, I was so excited to play for him and I enjoyed it so much. Then I wanted to stay with it. But uh, after college, I really didn't know what I was going to do. And then a couple of coaches called me and I started coaching with them. Then I ended up at Parkview and then uh, the head coach resigned and they didn't really have anybody else. So it was like, you're taking it, not really uh, me pursuing it. It was like, you're going to, you're going to take it. So. So you accidentally came to football because they saw that you were like a big kid and you needed to be playing football. Yeah. Well, I got bigger and bigger. Yeah. I played basketball and golf, actually. That was, that was, golf was the big thing I loved. And, um, I I don't know how I ended up playing football, but it's crazy how that, how that happens because through youth, I didn't, uh, I played one year of youth football and I didn't play much. So I didn't, I didn't think I was going to play anymore. And then I played in high school. Do you, did you play the same position in youth football that you did in high school football? No, I was playing like tight end and trying to be, you know, trying to touch the ball like everybody else. And then <laughs> when I got to high school, I didn't touch the ball anymore. You played uh, D-line in college, right? Yes, D-line and then O-line at the end. So talk about, you went to UVA. So talk about um, that recruitment process, you know, when they first contacted you, how you, you ended up deciding to go there and what it was like playing college football. Well, I went to... Um, I have five or six offers. And then uh, when I visited UVA, the the coach, I went with my dad and, and he took out a golf club and he starts putting around. He goes, you know, at Virginia, you can play golf and football at the same time. And um, I was recruited for golf a little bit also. So I was pretty excited about that. So I said, okay, I'm, that's where I want to go. I can do both of them. And then when it came to the spring, I said something about golf. He goes, oh, no, you're play, you got spring football. You can't play golf. 
So, um, <laughs> so he lied to you. I mean, yeah, yeah, that was, that was the, that was the thing that really persuaded me to go there actually is because of the golf thing and it wasn't real. They just, uh, basically lied to me. So, <laughs> and I told this story the other day, I'm on a group thread with, uh, you remember Patrick Winslow, Patty Winslow? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, uh, I, I overheard you one time, uh, challenge him to a golf match in high school and you challenged him this way. You said, Patty, we're going to go up to Sterling. We'll play, we'll play all 18 holes. You bring your full set and I'll beat you with only a putter in my bag. Do you remember making that challenge? Uh, yeah, I've made that challenge many times. <laughs> yeah. I was good with the putter. Play a par three with a putter, I could play it. You're going to hit off the tee with a putter? Yes, yes. <laughs> Has have anybody you, ever taken you up on it and have you won every single time? Uh, well, I've won my way. I've had to cheat a little bit. Um, yeah, I played quite a few little three-hole matches and stuff like that with a putter. And I'm pretty good with a putter. So, you draw, you drove the ball off the tee with a putter. Yeah. it's yeah. You know, those mallet head putters are pretty big now. So, you just take a mallet head putter and smack it. And <laughs> off you I thought go. that was the greatest challenge I ever heard. I was like, that's so insulting that he thinks he can yeah. beat you with just yeah. a putter. <laughs> I still tell all these guys I can beat them in basketball too. I just don't play anymore. I never get around to it now. Just make the threat. Just be really yeah, odd about exactly. it. Yeah. <laughs> so, what was it like playing in college? I mean, did you do pretty well? Was it uh, really taxing? I mean, tell us about your, your career at UVA. Uh, it wasn't much to it. Um, started playing early. I got to play at Texas against Earl Campbell. That's my big highlight. Did you get to tackle him? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How he, was that? But he, it was 60... 60 something to nothing and half and they were oh chanting gosh. for a hundred and um <laughs> oh gosh. so we were beat up pretty bad i think he had 260 yards rushing and a half and i don't know what he ended up with but it was it was a little crazy um but then the next year i got moved to offense and i got redshirted moved to offense and literally never played again oh wow so i didn't take my fifth year i got out of there um but I played a lot my freshman year on defense and then got moved to offense. So, Where are you from originally? Where were you born? Um, West Virginia. So what is your, uh, do you have a favorite football team? What's your team? Well, all my family follows West Virginia. Um, I, I go back and forth, but I'm, I'm, I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm a bandwagon person, but Alabama and New England are my teams. But I, I love uh, Saban, how he coaches. I like Belichick, the way he coaches. Yeah, I was going to guess that you would like a team that had really solid coaching. So, yeah. Saban, I'm a, I went to University of Florida for my uh, doctorate. And uh, now that he's in the SEC, I'm just like, God, I wish that guy would retire. He's such a good coach. Yeah. <laughs> well, he had, he came to school. He got mad at me, I think. I was supposed to, I was supposed to speak at an Alabama clinic. And um, he was recruiting one of our kids, John Allen, who plays for the yeah. Redskins now. And uh, he came in the building. And I honestly, I had a fever of 102. And I went home. I didn't go. So I wasn't there. So uh, my principal said he was irritated that I wasn't there. I, I got a fever. You don't want somebody like that around. And then the, the next day I called just to apologize for not being there, you know, whatever. And um, I was off the docket for the clinic. So oh, <laughs> that's the last, com that's the last, uh, any kind of conversation I've had with him, I guess, I guess uh, I was supposed to be there. But wow, you should send him a gift basket filled with dirty tissues. Yeah, he, yeah. <laughs> he probably doesn't even remember anything about, you know, our school or anything else. But at that time, I guarantee he walked out of there irritated. And he goes, all right, you don't want to be there. 
take him off that take him off the clinic thing you know so i was gonna wait and we'll we'll get back because i want to ask you about uh where you started at parkview and how you made your way to stonebridge but since you brought it up i actually uh way back when when jonathan allen was at stonebridge i mario i didn't know anything about the kid and i didn't even know he was gonna be at the game i was at i didn't i just mario invited me to a game so you were you're playing some regular season game and Jonathan Allen is this defensive lineman alley for <laughs> Stonebridge. And I swear to you, this I'm not embellishing at all. Every single play, the, sna- this, the ball would be snapped. He'd be in the backfield. And basically, the player would just have to you know, hope that they went the, the different way than Jonathan Allen was playing. So uh, tell me about like him arriving at your school. What was it like to coach him? And, and you've already told us about what it was like watching him going through the recruiting process. But tell us a little bit about uh, your experience of having a player like that. Well, I mean, he, he came... When he came to Stonebridge, he was a safety running back, and um, Jonathan Allen was a safety. Yeah, and a running oh back. Oh my gosh! So I mean, he was fairly slender, but you know, he was a good athlete. But it wasn't something you know. He caught the easy balls, the hard balls. He struggled with, and um, so he wasn't playing much. And as a sophomore, he did. He wasn't slated to play a, a whole lot. And um, so we worked with him in a three point stance. He'd never been in a three point stance before. So we. We got him into that, and then we just brought him off the edge a little bit in the game. And from the first game, he gets a couple of sacks, and we go, whoa, he needs to start. So then he started. Then he started putting weight on, and by the time he was uh, you know, a senior, it was unbelievable. But he was not a – he didn't grow up as he – was, he was a touch-the-ball touch guy in, in youth league. He was at Western Branch. At the, that's where he played his freshman ball. And he was a safety wide receiver running back. How many schools called about him? Um, it was it was one of those things where it was a little frustrating because they said he was a little undersized to play inside, not quite quick enough to play outside. So you had like Virginia Tech holding on him. Uh, UVA offered him. Um, a bunch of ACC schools were starting to offer him. Then Florida came in. Uh, Dan Quinn was the – uh, the Atlanta head coach was the defense coordinator back then. Um, so he came in to recruit him and uh, they were offering him. So his stars were going to jump, but he was a three star at that point. And then Florida offered him. And within an hour, Alabama's offering him and he jumped to a five star and it just blew up. Uh, oh my goodness. But then everybody didn't want to offer him. Alabama had offered him. So it was like, what are we going to do? I mean, so a lot of people didn't even get a chance to offer because when Alabama jumps in the game, it, it kind of cancels out an awful lot of people. What's your role in that? Are you are you mailing off tapes? Or are you sending over files via email? Like, what's your what's the head coach's role during the players' recruitment process? Well, what they have, I mean, back when you played, they didn't have all this stuff, but they have <laughs> they have huddles. So basically, you know, we have the kids create the highlight films and we send them out. And you know, the guys are going to find players everywhere um right so as soon as his film started going out he was pretty dynamic took over games um you know so it it immediately got responses and then guys start recruiting and it takes off so could you explain what huddle is and also explain how i feel like kids are sending out tapes of themselves in a whole bunch of sports now it just feels sort of ubiquitous could you talk a little bit more about that yeah i mean it's basically uh, you know a place where all the college coaches are also um, have a subscription to, and you're basically creating, it's a platform where you can create your highlight. You can cut up the film so we can, once we upload it, the kids can cut it up, put the plays that they want, 
create the highlight because they know more about technology than we do. <laughs> and then it's on our site. So if you're if you if you're going, oh, I'm going to what, what Stonebridge has, you can go on our site right now and start plucking through our guys and see who it is. Now, college coaches don't like doing that, but some of them do that. They, they like you sending it so that they don't have to go through everybody's site. So then all you do is just a couple of clicks, send it to the coaches and they have it. That's and it makes world. it, I mean, it makes it so much easier. It used to be hours and hours and hours of cutting up tapes, sending out stuff. You don't have to do any of that anymore. Wow. And that's all sports. That's like a part-time job for you back in the day. Yeah. Yes, Goodness it is. Goodness sakes. It's, it's really easy. I can send film anywhere in the country and in a matter of a minute anywhere um, and not have to work very hard to do it. Do you get calls from college coaches a lot? Like, are you on the, on the line with them a lot? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they'll call and then we'll have anywhere from a hundred to 120 visits in the spring. Oh my um, gosh. They just keep rolling in. Who do you have? Can I, can I bump into them? Can I see them? Depending on, you know, the rules. I didn't realize it was that many visits. Yeah. There's a, there's a ton. If you count all the twos and threes and, and division ones. Now, do you have to, are you just full on salesman during that? Or do you have to kind of keep your own like credibility by giving them an objective take? Like how do you, what's your role? Do you have to, you just go full on hard sell with those coaches? What, what do you? That's where it gets hard. Cause if you, if you lose credibility, if you're just throwing guys out there, so right. you gotta, you know, we all think, you know, I think our football players are the best football players. Just like we all think our kids are our, are the best kids. And, you know, so, and then you got to just kind of, kind of take a, take a step back. Cause if you don't, they'll never list, listen to anything you got to say again. I wondered about that because you want them to keep coming, which means you've got to give them kind of the really unvarnished cr uh, critique, right? Right. And then, if, and then if you push somebody and they're and you're wrong, it's amazing how, you know, like we had, uh, you know, a, a line of guys going to Wake Forest, but we'd send a guy to Wake Forest who they would do well. The next one, I would say this guy and it would build and it would build and it would build. And then I've had a couple where, you know, I pushed hard and they didn't do so well and they don't really take another one of our guys. Wow. What percentage of your players go on to play college football? And then what percentage of those players go on to play professional? We've only had five so far play professional. So, yeah, Jonathan Allen, who were the other four? Um, uh, Nate Davis right now is playing for the Tennessee Titans. He plays guard. Um, my son, Zach Thompson, he played uh, with the Ravens. Aaron Crawford right. is with the Ravens. And Ed Wang with the Buffalo Bills. Oh, that's right. Ed Wang. But the um, only two that are still playing right now are Nate, who's, uh, who's been playing really well. His contract comes up. You know, he's got uh, Derrick Henry behind him. Yeah. And that's the picture we got in the wall, him blocking for Derrick Henry. And then we got a picture of Jonathan Allen uh, tackling Tom Brady. Oh, wow. Um, wow. <laughs> and then Aaron Crawford um, rushing Ben Roethlisberger last year. Um, so we got some Hall of Famers with our guys in, in pro games. So, How'd you feel when you saw Jonathan Allen sign that gigantic lucrative contract? Oh, I was excited for him. He's such a great person, you know, and, and uh, his dad's been, you know, so supportive over the years and they're still in the area. Um, he gets, uh, when he first signed with the Redskins, he was around a, a decent amount, but now it's like, I mean, he's yeah. just overwhelmed, you know, yeah. with uh, people all the time. So I don't see Such much a of him. story. Yeah. But uh, what a great player he was. And, and what a great, you know, you see him talk and you see how he is. I mean, 
that bodes well for our program that he came from our program, somebody that carries himself that well. Yeah. Um, Coach, could you tell us how you got into coaching um, after you played for a little bit and then you said you got picked up to be a coach? How did that happen? Um, actually, it was um, the coach at Parkview at that time, Ed Scott, um, asked me to come back to Parkview and, and coach. And uh, to be perfectly honest, it was I was lukewarm about about coaching until I started coaching. And it was uh, a lot of the guys um, that were in Sterling at that time. They were just so much fun to coach and had such a they, they really wanted to win. And then being able to find my place as a player's coach, that was I think that's what made it for me. You know, I, I, I'm not the saving type. I'm not the ball. I like that, but I uh, I like being a player's coach and pushing that line. You know, so tell, uh, what do you mean by, tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, yeah. What is players' coach? Well, just you know, I I knew a lot about what was going on, who they were going out with, what they were doing. Uh-huh. Uh, they 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 trusted me with that information, and then you know, and then there's a fine line of you know where do you become the adult and and step in and say whoa that's too much or whatever. Um, but just being part of their lives is what I really liked. You know, it wasn't like I'd coach and go home. I knew, you know, I, I would see their friends. I knew their friends. I knew their girlfriends. I knew, you know, I just, it just felt more, I felt more a part of it. You know, given what you said about being a player's coach, I think this is as logical of a time to ask you this question as any. So, and I've always wanted to ask you this question. Uh, what, I think it was my junior year. I actually ended up quitting the football team. I didn't show up. I just decided I'm not going to go. I'm never going back. I was just having a really rough time. It really had nothing to do with football. It was about me and my my personal life. And I was just having a rough time as a, as a high school kid. And, you know, you have this sort of stereotype of a football coach, this sort of big, gruff, you know, mean, scary guy, not because that was what Thompson was, but that was just what, you know, that was the stereotype. Right. And so I expected that he would never talk to me again. Or if I did see him, he'd yell at me or something. Uh, but it went the opposite direction. He actually sent uh, one of the, one of his coaches, who had actually been my Little League coach and who I really adored, Coach Ware. He sent him to my house. He picked me up. We went out to eat. He bought me pizza. And he said, look, beyond just anything about what you can add to our team, I just want you to know that you're going to be missing out on something really important here. We're going to have a great season. All of your friends are playing this is going to be something that's going to be really great that you're going to be missing out on. And we really think you should be a part of this. And so based upon my relationship with Coach Ware, I said, yeah, I'll come back. So I came back and I was really nervous about seeing Coach. I was like, is he going to blackball me? Is he never going to talk to me again? Is it going to be sort of this cold war? And it wasn't anything like that. He never said a word to me about it beyond one thing. A couple days after I came back, I was in the weight room and he came by and he gave me this little smirk that you could tell he was, you know, he wasn't mad at me. He was, he was smiling and he said, uh, you're not going to quit on us again, are you? <laughs> and it was like, and that was it. That was it. That was the extent of it. And, you know, I, I've always wondered, I've always wanted to ask you, how have you had this knack? I mean, is it intentional that you know how to be hard on some guys because that's what they need to succeed? And then guys like me who would have just crumbled into a million pieces if you said even the harsh, one harsh word to them, you knew how to treat them differently. Is that something you do intentionally? Do you think about that? I think that's part of being a player's coach. If you do, I mean, if you know people, then you know how to treat them. And, you know, and if you know people, you know a little bit about what's going on. If you don't know anything about them or what's going on, then how do you know, you know, 
that this is not a good time to get on them or this is, you know, this is what's going on and, you know, they can't handle any more, uh, you know, criticism or whatever. I mean, you, you got to you gotta know the players before you can uh, treat them right. Does that go through your mind though? Like, okay, this player, I can't really, I can't really pile on this player right now. <laughs> oh yeah. Everything you're saying is, you know, sometimes people say things, but you're, what you're saying is exactly what I would like to think that um, people think about me is that, you know, I do consider, I do think about what they're, what's going on with them and that, and that dictates how I treat them. Oh, it wasn't just that I recognized at the time that, oh, I can see what's going on here. Like, he recognizes my struggle that I'm going through right now and he's helping me through it in the best way that he knows how to help me through it rather than, you know, yelling at me or screaming at me or blackballing me. In fact, Coach Thompson, uh, and he's never going to, Coach Thompson's never going to say, you know, he's never going to take any credit for any of this because you can, you can tell his demeanor. But uh, so I told that story on a group thread, my family group thread recently. And uh, I said, because you had just won a state championship or something, and I was really bragging about you. And I said, Thompson was just a huge, just a huge inspiration and really helpful to me at a really crucial time in my life. And Jason Paltier uh, was on the same group thread, my brother-in-law. And he said, I wouldn't have graduated high school without Coach Thompson. He said, I was failing PE. He said, I was going to fail out of high school. And Coach Thompson saw that I was having trouble, transferred me into his Thompson's PE class, made me play football so that he could keep a close eye on me the rest of my time. He said, I would not have graduated high school without Coach Thompson. So oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's bringing up memories right there, just his name. It's crazy. There must be countless stories, just like Jason's and mine, of Coach Thompson having these major, major positive impacts on young people's lives. I mean, I recognized in the moment as a high school kid, what a lifeline he was throwing me. It was a crucial formative moment in my life. And it's one of my most heartwarming memories that I have of any adult growing up. And I, I can't thank you enough for it. I mean, it made a huge impression on me then. It continues to make a major, major impression on me today. And I think it really was a really important moment in my life. And it's because of Coach Thompson. So, um, thank you. And before I bore everybody with my life story, <laughs> let's get back to it. So can you tell us how you got to be the Parkview head coach? Uh, basically, um, Ed Scott retired and everybody said you should do it. I remember, uh, um, uh, Mr. Colbert, Ken Colbert, he was the principal then he just came down the hall and he goes, so you're going to be our new football coach. And I go, uh, <laughs> Didn't know that. He goes, yep, and walked down the hall, and then the, uh, the AD came and talked to me, and, you know, that was it. Now, what year was this? 1990, I believe. And were you living um, in the area at the time? Yes, yeah. Uh, so, I was, I was living here. I was uh, teaching in-school restriction, <laughs> which was fascinating then. Um, <laughs> and... Um, so that, I didn't know uh, they had a teacher solely for in-school restrictions. Yeah, and you got full pay and you could have them do, they would come to me and I would take them out. And we would paint dugouts and we would, I loved it. But then they said you couldn't do that anymore. It wasn't going to be, a, it was going to be a teacher's assistant job. So it's going to be half the pay. And then it was going to be, uh, you know, you had to do remedial work with them. Uh, okay. And that's when hmm. I went to PE. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> so uh, talk a little bit about... So you're a coach taking over a program. 
what are the most important things a coach must do to build a football program? Because it's so much more than just X's and O's. And I know, I know a lot of the stuff that you do. I don't know probably a fraction of what you do, but I know a lot of it and it's a lot. So how do you build a program up to what you've made Parkview and now Stone Bridge? Well, I think the first thing is you got to be yourself and you got to, you know, you got to figure out what you, what you uh, want it to look like, um, what the offense is going to look like, what the defense is going to look like and, and, and be able to, you know, and before you do that, you really can't do that until you know the kids, in my opinion. So we came in and we ran the same stuff that we they'd been running. I wasn't going to come in and change anything. And I got to know the kids and I got to know everybody before I started making the changes. And that was uh, that was pretty hard because we were losing early and they wanted me out of there. There's a lot of people wanted me out of there for a while there. Um, and then you know, and then I was having a hard time because I was trying to figure out who I was and how I was going to coach. And, you know, I, I really, up until your years, I was still trying to figure out exact, exactly what it was going to be. And then when we settled on high risk offense, run single wing offense, uh, be aggressive, go on fourth down. And that was going to be our kind of personality. And um, when we got to that, that's when everything exploded. And and took off. So, so can you talk about sort of the, the non-strategic stuff? So for instance, uh, Mario told, tells me that you really get into the little leagues and try to build them up and make sure that they're great feeder systems. Is that true? I mean, what's the, what's the philosophy there? What's the, what are you doing with the little leagues? Well, I just want to be visible. I mean, we have yeah. all of our, we have AYFL plays, um, all their youth games at our field. Um, I'm there all day Saturday, I open up for them. Um, our players are around. I try to get our players, um, you know, we don't have any Saturday or Sunday practices. We got away from that. Not, well, Sunday you can't, but on Saturdays. So um, just try to get them around. And, you know, then we put all our banners and all of our records over the years are all up everywhere. So the kids are walking in, they're seeing Stonebridge football. They want to play Stonebridge football. Um, they're excited about football. You know, I'm around – I talk to as many kids as I can talk to. Um, just trying. I've heard that you you know help the coaches get to the clinics they need to get to, the equipment they need to get to. Is that true? Yep. I mean, we're all. It's, it's a great partnership right now. We we uh, we're able to help each other both ways, and um, it's been uh, it's probably the best thing I've done. I didn't do that as well in um, at Parkview as I do with Stonebridge. You know, in uh, the depictions of high school football that I've seen, kind of TV and movies, it feels like the community gets overly involved. Um, and I know that in in my hometown, the community is always there. You know, whether or not they have you know a child playing a football, you know, in the football on the football team or playing in the marching band or something, um, is that the case? Do you find that the community is there and they're watching and they're you know you go to the grocery store and suddenly everyone's like, hey, coach. You should think about putting Eppard in in the third quarter, throwing the pigskin around. <laughs> yeah, yes, a hundred percent. I mean, it, it was. Um, I thought it got almost cult like there for a while at uh, in Sterling because we were running an offense that nobody was running, and everybody was getting into it. And you know, that was my uh, probably my hardest thing is when I had to leave at that time, and uh, I would have loved to have stayed another five, six, seven years, but it didn't happen that way. But um, cause we could have kept it going for a, quite a long time. I actually do remember a parent, uh, at halftime of a game 
telling Thompson how he should coach one time. And I, I found that very interesting because <laughs> he was always very scary to me. I never would have done that. <laughs> yeah, I hey, coach, I, I got some coaching advice for you. Yeah. yeah. So, um, talk about, about what it's like being on your staff and, and, and um, how much work it is, with the kind of stuff you guys do in terms of film and clinics and that kind of stuff. Well, you, you, number one, you better like each other. And number two, you better like football. Um, yeah. Because there are – there's a lot of sacrifices that you that you make, especially during the season. It's like every weekend is just filled with film or or getting together, and you know Sunday nights or you're taking Sunday nights away from families. But I I, w- I would say that our our staffs over the years have been almost you know I've had 16 I think go on and be head coaches, and so everybody is really into football, and the younger people are the are are the people that you know, you, you try to gather people around because they're going to have relationships with the kids. And then um, as I've moved through the years, what I've found is uh, younger people have a harder time with the commitment of football. So now I like older coaches. Maybe it's because I'm older. I don't know. <laughs> but because uh, they have the time, you know, you know, you don't realize young young people are starting families and got kids. And then it's, it's really difficult for them to be there as much. Um, and when they're not there, I mean, when they – when you're not doing something, they want to get out of there. And so you want the older coaches who have more time for football. That's what I find now. But early on, we just got as many young guys around as we could. And it was, it was really the best times of my life for the early years coaching football, because we were all into it, having fun, great relationships with kids. So those are my best memories. As a, as a player, I think I didn't realize just because you're a dumb 17 year old or whatever, I didn't realize how much work it was until I think I left something at the weight room or something. So I drove up there on a Sunday night and all the coaches' cars are there and they're all in the film room breaking down film. And I was like, oh my goodness. Okay. They they put a lot of work into this. <laughs> yeah, that's what's frustrating sometimes when, you know, I think I think people who know, they understand. But then I think that's why coaches get so bothered by people that are questioning this or questioning that. And, you know, um, you know, it's once it's okay to do it once in a while, but they're doing it all the time. You're going, you're not putting in the time we're putting in to make these decisions. And then you're going to, you know, you're going to question everything that we do. So you can see where the frustration comes in. Just throw the ball deep every time, coach. Right. Come on. Or throw the ball. Everybody likes to throw the ball. I like, I like it the, when you throw the ball. I like to that. That makes it ball. really fun. Everybody says you run a ball and you got, you know, seven different schemes and you're doing all kinds of cool things and blocking. And all people say is, quit running up the middle. (laughs) That was seven different plays we were running and they have no idea. Have you ever, have you ever had the urge to go coach college as successful as you've been as a high school coach? None. Really? Um, None. Why not? I I, I like doing what I'm doing. Um, I like being in the community and I don't really want to do the recruiting and travel and all that kind of thing. And, and the most important thing is why I stayed with football was because of uh, my kids, both my, all three boys played football and then my daughter played soccer. So I wanted to be around the school. And, you know, when your dad's the football coach, it makes things, I don't know. It was great for them, I think. Um, it could have been bad, but they were great football players. So it made it easy. Um, so yeah. you didn't have the, you know, people accusing you of daddy ball and all that. It was obvious that they were the better players. So. Yeah, Allie, his kids are enormous like him. So, uh, it's pretty obvious they're good football players. <laughs> but having that time with them and the summers with them, I remember my daughter, you know, she's she was the last one. She's playing soccer right now at BU. And she, uh, you know, 
uh, her junior year or something, she was, she looked at me and she goes, you're not going to quit. Are you? you? You're not going to quit. Are you? She didn't, she was scared. I was going to quit because she liked being the daughter of the football coach at the high school she was at, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> she wanted that same, you know, perk, I guess you would call it that the boys got, you know, yeah. so, yeah. And even though I wasn't directly coaching her, she, you know, that was a great experience for her. How do you keep control of a program where you have to disseminate your message and your scheme to all these coaches and get them all on the same page? And then also you have to keep all of your players on the same page. I mean, I remember us as, as students at Parkview, like the entire football team being at a party that could have gotten us all kicked off the team. Like, oh, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, you do? <laughs> oh, I remember that, that one. Yes, I do. That was like one of a hundred bad things we did. Like, how do you keep control of a program of a bunch of young guys who just want to wreck their lives every single second of every single day? <laughs> I, some of that's got to be luck. I, it's hard because, you know, you know, we've, we've had similar things, episodes of different things over the years. And I remember that one because that one was probably it seemed like one of the biggest things that that could ever happen to me at that time. Um, I I think a lot of it's luck. I mean, you just hope the parents are on board and they're helping you manage it because you can't, you can't control it. You just got to manage it and hope that, you know, they don't do something stupid before they graduate. (laughs) How do you go home at night, especially on the weekends, knowing we're all out there (laughs) doing our thing? (laughs) I don't think you'll ever have a hard time sleeping. (laughs) No, I don't think about it. Uh, not till now. Now you got me worried about it. I hadn't thought about this stuff till now. That'd be a difference. I'll yeah. tell you a story off the air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to what we were talking about with uh, with with uh, team building and solidarity, Al, you'll love this. Uh, I'm not sure when you instituted this, Coach Thompson, because it, I think it was always a thing when I was playing. But uh, Allie, uh, the night before games on a Thursday night, we got to go to Outback Steakhouse as a team and have team dinner. Do you still do that? We do a pasta dinner at the school. Okay. Um, it's what we do now. Up until like four or five years ago, we were still going to Steakhouse. What in your opinion, and this may be different now than it was when you were younger, but what in your opinion is the hardest part of coaching? The hardest part has got to be the consistency. You know, you can't be... You, you've got to be the same year in and year out. You can't, mm-hmm. um, you know, jump around in your um, philosophies or your commitment to whatever you're running. Um, I, I think a lot of guys, they just see, see something out there that looks pretty and all of a su- sudden they're, you know, gravitating towards that or they hear somebody else talk and say, that's the way I'm going to run the team. And, um, you know, if, if, you, if there's not consistency and, 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 and the other thing is I think you have to be able to, um, apologize when you don't make uh, good decisions or you don't treat players the way you should. I mean, I've, I've, I've lost my composure, um, you know, uh, suspended kids and all kinds of stuff like that. And the next day I go, what? that was a complete overreaction. So I'd come back and, uh, you know, be able to apologize and say that I didn't, uh, I didn't handle that situation right. Or, you know, if, if you can't, if you don't have a transparency and you can't stay consistent, you can't win. What would you say has been your proudest moment of coaching? Um, they both revolve around a state championship. I hate to be like that, but um, <laughs> one is winning the state championship with my with my sons. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I think I think that's up there, and um, 
went in a state championship with COVID. Um, I said that COVID is, is our advantage because we, we handle situations and we have relationships and we can work through this COVID and still win it. So, um, what about your lowest moment as a coach? The early years at Parkview probably, but before we won, cause it got to the point where we couldn't move the ball. We were going triple a, we didn't have any, and it was getting pretty rough as far as seeing it, seeing me coaching another 30 years, like it, like hap like did happen. I think how intense you up. said people were calling for you to be fired. I mean, was that like one or two people that were really getting in your head or was it a lot of people? Um, well, I, I, I think the biggest thing for me was Sonny Pearson was the AD back then and hired. Ken Colbert was the principal. Sonny Pearson was the AD and, you know, he was a former football coach. And so there was a lot of criticism early on that he shielded away. So, um, uh. He left, he left a few years later, he left. And then I went and was helping clean up the AD's office. And there were all these letters in there that he had never given me that were sitting in the office. And I mean, there were 30 of them. Um, mean letters? Pretty much blasted me. Yeah. He just <laughs> said, this is unfounded. Put it in the desk. I didn't even know about it. You know, um, so those first few years were tough. After winning, I think we won 14 straight district district titles and then I took over and we were four and six, um, five and five, um, four and oh, six. So Ed, so Ed Scott had been really successful. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. 14 okay. years. So there was, there was a three or three year gap in there. And then we had a, actually had a winning season, um, uh, with, uh, I think we were seven and three and one, 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 the region, Joe Reeves was our fullback and we were still running some of the old stuff from him. Um, that kind of helped a little bit. And then we went back to four and six, I think the next year. And it was like, same uh -oh. stuff. Yeah. 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 Go ahead, Alex. Sorry. So you still play golf, I take it sometimes just with a putter. <laughs> yes. I'm the best. I'm the best at, you don't know. I'm the best athlete in the state of Virginia. Yes. I've, so that's, that's the one I'm I just, remember. <laughs> I'm just, yes. I still am. So yes, I play golf. Okay, this is exciting. What else then do you what else do you do then as in your in your position as the best athlete in the state of Virginia? You play golf, you Well, I was the eighth grade um pool uh pool champion in Leesburg and I was the eighth grade bowling champion and I'm really good at ping pong. Oh yeah, that's right. You are basketball. Really good at um name it. I I can do it. I can do anything. Wow, that sounds extremely impressive uh, or arrogant isn't it no i, I just think <laughs> i tell people that all the time family barbecues are probably a whole lot of fun and yeah. also very competitive yeah I'll that's say so that. funny i remember you saying that in high school i'm the best athlete in the state of virginia right. <laughs> that's so awesome <laughs> what's the uh what's the weirdest innovation you wanted to try sometime like you're like i'm gonna run the air raid offense or whatever like what's one of the weirdest innovations that you wanted to try that didn't work out as a coach? Um, well, we tried a lot of stuff. Um, <laughs> spread offense is not something I'm, I'm overly comfortable with. So we've tried a lot of different, you know, cause, cause we needed to complement the offense we were running with some spread because you need more wide receivers in order for kids to get excited about playing. They all want to be receivers, touch the ball. So we tried, you know, anything you see on TV, we had one year where we did go five wide and, it actually worked out and we played well. We lost in, in the, um, in the region because we couldn't run the ball. Mm -hmm. Shocker. But, um, 
you know, that, I would say that was a successful um, um, change and it was pretty drastic. But, um, you know, the next year we tried doing it and it was terrible. So we, it faded away pretty quick. So we do very little of that anymore. That's the only one I can remember where it, it worked out, but then we and then we thought we had something the next year and realized it was just a, those people at that time, it worked, but it wasn't sustainable. Were you always kind of, does it always kind of bug you? Like, I hate this spread stuff. I got to get away from this. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> that's what all the guys come up, all the young guys coming up, all the guys coaching, that's what they know. So, right. that's their thing kind of. So, I, I can give them a piece of it. So, when we go spread, it's a lot of their ideas and their thoughts and not mine and i feel like i lose a little control which has been a struggle over over the years how much do i go that way and lose the control so who's your favorite um fictional football coach like is there a movie or tv show that features a a football coach and you think yeah they they pretty much got it or that football coach is a hero and that's who i that's who i like uh, I can't really think of anybody. Which one did you see and you laughed at? And like, that's not, that's not real. Like Al Pacino and every given Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what's that one? Uh, the replacements. I like that one. Too. <laughs> it's so cheesy. I like it. But uh, do you use any analytics? Analytics are all the rage. Do you guys use any of them with your team? Not really. Um, and it's, it's really hard for me because, you know, we have, uh, we film the game uh, from the end zone, from the press box and from the sideline and we integrate all three and we watch the game like um, I, we can run a play and I can watch the play from end zone camera and watch all the blocking before I call even the next play. Um, really? I have no idea how that happens. Um, our In, guys during all the know game? It. Yeah, we have iPads on the sideline. So, you'll see a lot of our coaches never even look up at the game. They just look at the iPad watch the play and then they'll they'll yell into their iPad almost without even hardly looking up. Um, <laughs> they didn't even see it live. They just watched it on the iPad. Um, it's it's hard to call it that quickly, but you could. Um, that's how quick it comes in. Um, wow. And it's uh, – and so uh, all the breakdowns on Huddle, they break down the film. You can uh, – I mean, everything is – I have no idea how to do any of that stuff. Um <laughs> And so, offensively, we're a little more unconventional because um, I don't really know how to access all that information to the truth. <laughs> but it's all there. Everybody uses it. And then we do a self-scout. I make sure we self-scout so I can see if there's any tendencies that we're kind of leaning towards That because I know everybody else. I mean, literally, it's even the coaching world. High school coaching is – the coaching part of it is all evened out now. So, even if you're a hard worker, you're not going to beat the guy who's a lazy guy. Not in a coach because they're just pushing buttons on huddle now. Um, where you're going to win is the time you spend spend with relationships and working on actually working on the plays. But the part of the X's and O's are all even now. Really interesting. Yeah, there's, there's there's really no recruiting is all even now. You don't have to work. The lazy coaches are just as good as the best ones. Um, so it's, it's all really, about the you know spending time with people, building relationships, like you said. Right. Interesting. Uh, you recently uh, had your 300th win. Did you know that? And if so, did you celebrate? I did. That was, um, I'm, I don't really worry about the, the wins and losses too much, but the 300 was a big deal. I wanted to get 300 and 
I don't know why, but that was, um, <laughs> yeah, we went out the family and, you know, it was a little bit low key because, um, it was the state championship. So it's like, uh, which is more important, you know, if, if you really look at it, 300 is a nice accomplishment for me, but we just won the state cha championship and it was about the state championship and the kids. And so, right. Um, there's a lot of people, even on our coaching staff, that didn't even know that was the 300th win. It was the state championship. We won a state championship. That's all we talked about. And right. Later on, they said that was your 300th. And I go, yep, that was the 300th. I was well aware of it. Trust me. But. <laughs> um, has it ever been difficult for Kathy, given the amount of time that you spend with football? And uh, if so, has she made peace with it? Or maybe it's been easier now that your kids are growing older. Can you talk about that? Um, yeah, she, I think she kind of likes it now. It wasn't <laughs> like that early on because, you know, uh, having kids and, um, I, you know, the, I, if you asked earlier about mistakes, I would say the, the one thing that I would say to young coaches or anybody getting into coaching, man, make sure you're taking care of your family um, while you coach. So, you know, I, I, I look back at some of the stuff that, that I did and, you know, I put uh, high school football before my family and a lot of places that I shouldn't have. So, um, you know, that's, that's one thing that's, you know, you, you leave your wife stranded and, um, I left her stranded many times and then later and now she, I think she likes me being away. She's got her time, you know, it's, you know, but <laughs> get out of here, go coach football. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I do think, yeah, that's, that's the, that's the hardest balance, you know, that's why I'm, I, you know, I can, I said, I like older coaches, but you know, both my sons are coaching with me and they really put their family first. And I like that, you know, if, if that gets in a way, I say, go take care of that first. And, you know, well, uh, this, th this football thing will last. It'll be all right. So, well, uh, first of all, I want to say congratulations on 300, uh, congratulations on two state championships in addition to all the regional championships and all the district championships and, uh, all that stuff is much more important than the next thing I'll say, which is, but it, which is important to me, which is, uh, I, I never got a chance to thank you for being such an important part of my life at a really crucial time in my life. Uh, and so thank you. It was, uh, you, you saved a big part of my youth for me. So thank you that for that. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's... And thank you for joining us on the podcast today as well. I appreciate it. Nice getting to know you. Next up on today's episode, we have Tina Hill, who is the athletic director at Wilson college. Tina, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here with you today. We are very excited to talk about all of this with you. So if you wouldn't mind, can we begin with an overview of the NCAA? Could you briefly just tell us what the organization is all about and um, define for us kind of the different parts of it, please? Sure. Well, the NCAA is just one of a few national associations that are there to support our student-athletes in higher education. So when it started way back when, and for those of you that want to look it up, the NCAA.org is a fantastic res uh, resource for um, individuals to learn more about the association. But it's meant to preserve the amateurism of our young adults in higher education. And when it first started, you had some larger institutions, and I chuckle about this. I used to work at a small Division three school in Iowa, and our wrestling team we were a campus of a thousand students. 
um, wrestled against UCLA and we've, we won. Um, oh, wow. you know, so, so as higher ed, um, became more sophisticated with their intercollegiate program, it became clear that they need to create some sort of guidelines for rules, not only playing within the sport, but within how they're organized. And, um, three decades ago, um, they used to be all one association. And I remember going to those annual conventions and we voted on every single piece of legislation for each of the member institutions. And for those that may not be familiar with that, there's over, um, within the three divisions, we've got the largest at division three. So there's about 445 members now at that division. And we have the most student athletes, which is pushing 200,000 students. And then there's also division two. Um, there's sort of that middle division. Um, they offer about 300 active members. Um, and they're a school that can provide athletic scholarships, partial scholarships, and some full scholarships. And then the part of the association that the public hears most about in the headlines is our friends in division one. And there, there's only about 350 institutions and about 6,000 student athletes, or excuse me, 70,000 student athletes uh, within that division. And so we're now broken down in those three divisions, and we are structured in a way that we can work independently with rules as it relates to our division. Um, but interestingly enough, the game rules are all the same. So how we play baseball uh, here in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, is the same rules uh, that baseball teams at UCLA are, are playing. Um, so the game rules are the same across the division, um, but it's a voluntary membership of where your intercollegiate program wants to, wants to be a member of. You also have the NAIA um, association, there's a small college association, and there's even a, a Christian-based um, association nationally that institutions could choose uh, where they think their membership um, serves them best for their campus. What what kinds of things would a school have to do in order to become a member of the NCAA? Well, it kind of depends on which division they see themselves most aligned. So your smaller institutions typically might select division three. We tend to be known for the division that does not provide athletic scholarships. Everything we offer is completely based on their academic merits. Um, so my institution, Wilson College, if we wanted to go Division One, we certainly could choose to do that, but there's financial requirements and facility requirements, budgetary requirements that that would never be a good fit. So it depends where any particular institution sees themselves. Um, there was some news recently that Hartford in the um, Massachusetts area was going from Division Three, or excuse me, from Division One to Division Three, and we have a school in Minnesota that had been Division Three that's going Division One. Um, so institutions change over time, and their their vision and how they're served through their athletic program changes, and so that membership um, may change. You said there was uh, facilities requirements. That's interesting. Can you expand on that? Well, for your Division One folks, um, particularly if they have football, um, they have certain requirements on seating capacity, as an example, um, is sort of the most, most glaring one. Um, there's certain commitments for what their budget size 
is required. And so you need to sort of check those boxes um, as to whether that's a good fit in division one. Um, and you might be interested too that within each of the divisions, probably more so in division three and division one that I'm familiar with, there is a large gap um, between those members within each of those institute or within each of those um, levels within our association. So for an example, in Division three, we have institutions with enrollments as low as 500 and as high as 35,000 using New York University as an example. And yet as a division, when we come together to crown our national champion, you're competing that 500 school, if they are awarded the opportunity to enter the championship, they might be going up against somebody like the likes of, of NYU. And so, you know, the dilemma is, um, you know, how is that a level playing field when you think of resources? Um, sometimes it's not. Um, the arms race, as you hear about, is probably more dramatic in Division One, And you have some smaller Division One schools that financially cannot compete with what you might hear as the, um, you know, the big five or the power five conferences. And that's why in Division One you're starting to see some additional um, divisions, particularly as it relates to football. And in fact, the, the power five conferences, as they're referred to in the sport of football, they actually are providing that football championship outside the scope of the association. And that was quite controversial at the time that uh, those discussions were going on. Wait, could you explain that? What What do you mean outside? So the so the Power Five conferences, as they're referred to, particularly in the sport of football, those are like the ACC, the Big Ten, Big Twelve, Pac Twelve, and the uh, SEC. They conduct what you see on television. The football championship is outside the typical framework of the national championships within the association. So within the association, they conduct over 90 championships within all three divisions and 24 sports, maybe it's 25 sports, that football piece is outside that footprint. You think about, you know, so how is the association funded? Um, the men's basketball championship in particular um, is a multi-million dollar um, payback to the NCAA. So when we lost that championship last spring due to COVID, it was a significant financial hit um, to the association and budget cuts to kind of get through this, the pandemic last spring. It's a large um, contract with CBS on the men's side in particular. And a lot of that funding funds the operations of the association. So in Division Three, we get a benefit of that of 3.18% of those, those dollars, and that amounts to our $34.4 million um, that we operate our portion of our association and our championships. Um, and that number probably will never change, <laughs> never change. But for us, without that revenue, that's a significant um, challenge for us and how we and how we operate. So uh, there's a lot of money moving to fund the association. Um, in addition to ticket sales, that revenue comes in. And, you know, as a Division Three member, we only pay the association dues of $2,000 annually. It used to only be $900. 
And I say only because as member institutions, we get an awful lot of funding back to us. So for an example, we are benefiting from having an intern um, through a grant program through the association for the next two years. And that has a value of over $50,000, of which we had only invested our membership dues of $2,000. In our associations, the teams that advance to the NCAA championships, you get some per diem back to make those um, trips financially possible and per diem and they cover your travel expenses. So the schools that advance in the championships, which is an important part of experience, um, that that money that comes into the association helps provide that experience, which is so important. Um, and the other thing I would say about finances, particularly with our division, which is what I'm more familiar with, um, 25% of those monies are also put in reserve specifically for um, grant opportunities, education opportunities, everything aside from championships, so we can provide some additional education opportunities for our students in a variety of ways other than that championship experience. Okay, so Tina, so we know that uh, money has been playing a role in the NCAA and sports for quite some time now, especially in recent decades with these huge TV contracts, right? Um, But recently some things have changed, particularly players' ability to monetize their likeness, right? So can you tell us a little bit about the money, the the role that money was playing in the NCAA and in sports prior to these big changes that just occurred and how the world of college sports has changed because of those big structural changes? Sure. So for years, as um, institutions are generating a lot of this revenue to fund their programs, um, again, at the division one level, primarily, many of our student athletes have felt that they should get a piece of that as well. Because after all, the success is on their backs is how you might read about it in the paper. And so um, the student athletes really wanted to carve out a way of which they could benefit. And the association is founded on the amateurism. And so they would have to release that piece of legislation to allow students to financially benefit from any sort of corporate sponsorship that they might get because of their name, image, and likeness. So currently, you might hear and be listening about NIL. We've been talking about it now for a couple of years. But that's really what's happening is that our student athletes feel that they should benefit from it because of their work and how the institutions and coaches um, are, and sponsors, quite frankly, are benefiting off of their name, image, and likeness. And so how do we resolve that? So, you know, certainly there was a recent court case about that. Um, and while that's happening, um, there was a state that um, created their own legislation that was going to be permissive for student-athletes in their state. Is that California? Yes. Yeah. To be um, compensated if they partner with some corporate sponsorships. So from an association perspective, we're like, "Uh oh, you know, how do we manage this? Because in reality, we could be looking at 50 different state laws that we would need to somehow manage, which becomes not manageable. Or just all of the players wanting to go to California schools now. 
Well, and so when we talked earlier about the arms race, you can imagine of the recruiting advantage that that could set for schools that are in that particular state. And then how do conferences deal with that when they're a multi-state conference? So it suddenly becomes a pretty big deal. And so last January, all three divisions of the association were poised to vote on legislation that would provide um, an opportunity to allow this to happen. And quite frankly, there is some ways that students can do it now anyway, um, but not to the magnitude um, that these students really wanted. Well, the federal government last January asked us literally the day before institutions were going to vote not to pass any legislation. And so no action was taken in January. So fast forward into the spring, um, the only way the association really could deal with that is they simply provided a blanket waiver for all three divisions, giving student athletes the freedom to seek out their own opportunities where they personally could could benefit from sponsorships, corporations using their name, image, and likeness. And part of that also started with at Division One level, they had limits of how much they could help their students with regards to their educational costs. And that was blended in in those conversations as well. And so fast forward to today, what do we have? Um, our student athletes now across all three divisions, regarding, regardless of the state, can seek out those opportunities. So, of course, your big name Division One, usually men's basketball and football players will probably most readily benefit from that first. Or TikTokers. TikTokers. <laughs> um, I'm learning about Barstool. Um, that's affecting <laughs> even our our students at the Division three level. And what's happening, at least from the athletic director's perspective, is the timing was really bad. So because the state laws in many states were taking effect July 1st, the association had to take action June 30th. And that's literally how it happened. Mm-hmm. We don't have our students on campus to give them the education that they need about how to how to do this properly within the guidelines that still exist. So as an administrator at an institution here in Pennsylvania, I'll be talking with our student athletes that start coming next week about they need to follow Pennsylvania law. So right now they can do it, but they needed to do it within those guidelines. And that's where we're going to have some problems that some students are moving forward without paying attention to their state law, which jeopardizes their eligibility, which means I need to declare them ineligible and then find a way to get them eligible again, all because of this this money factor. And of course, you're talking about different access at different divisions. You might have seen on the local news, we had one of our uh, Penn State football players were highlighted. Um, because he was now allowed to offer his autograph at a local restaurant and charge for that autograph. And so that's starting to happen, and it's permissible, as long as in the state of Pennsylvania, he's given Penn State at least seven days' notice um, and whatever other guidelines Penn State may have created. But um, 
while the waiver has opened things up, it's created additional layers of things that we need to follow to make sure um, that our students are, are finding uh, the right way to do this, to supplement the income um, that they need um, because they don't have opportunities to go get additional jobs, particularly at the Division One level that our Division Three students do all the time. They're working in your local restaurants and targets and things because um, we don't have limits on what they can do. Um, so there's a lot of money to be had. I think we have some businesses that want to use those those name, image, and likeness to boost their um, profile in their community or nationally. And so um, it's taken a lot of work, not only with the staff at the association, but a lot of education um, to our administrators of how to administrate that. And yet, there's still discussions nationally of uh, can we have a federal law that applies to all um, institutions across the entire country and we're not there yet. So we'll be in this um, open-ended space, I think, for a while. I have a follow-up question about that in terms of protecting the students, mm -hmm. um, which is where my, my fealty always lies. Um, and I guess it's sort of twofold. First of all, I've, already read that there are folks who are preying on this decision and are starting to um, really take advantage of it at the expense of these student athletes. And so I'm wondering about protections for the kids that way. And then I'm also wondering if, if these kids now are going to be monetizing their athletic prowess as they have every right to, it, it further takes away from their education. And that already, I think at the D1 level was an issue that probably we, you know, nationally don't really talk as much about as we should. Um, so it's like less time that they're studying and doing academic work. Um, is anybody, you know, worried about that? So I guess my concern is for the kids and what are, are there discussions going on that you know of about that? There is. In fact, the guidelines that we've received as administrators um, actually restricts what our coaches can do. In other words, our coaches cannot go help create the deal. <laughs> um, the students really are sort of put out there and there are ways of which there are some channels that are sort of safe channels of which they can pursue. Um, but our coaches cannot be the ones that create the opportunities, if you will. Um, and it's a, incumbent upon us as administrators to make sure we're educating our students about where are these safety valves or safe places to go and why the state laws have put in some gatekeeping. Um, and I, I don't know any of all the states um, and their requirements, but in Pennsylvania, I think that's why they put put in the clause of you need to notify your institution seven days in advance before you are active in signing this agreement so somebody can review the agreement so that our student athletes aren't being taken advantage of, or at least that would be the, would be the goal. And I think reasonable. you're right. There's some very unscrupulous um, business associates that we probably have across the country that are going to try to take full advantage um, of these young people who are looking after the dollars that they need to support themselves, support their families in some cases. Um, but you're right. How does that level, and I don't have a personal um, 
knowledge or experience to really respond to your question in that way of how much more time is that taking away from their studies as an example. Um, I haven't been hearing that nationally, um, but I think it's probably too early to learn that because it happened in the summer. Um, So I think more is to come about that. And you're right. How do we, how do we best educate our students to make sure they're not getting lined up and signing off on something that could be actually very detrimental um, to them? So from, from your perspective, you know, you've laid out objectively what the debates are. But from your perspective, the net effect of this at your level, do you think it's good or bad? I think at our level, um, it's hard for me to answer whether it's good or bad because I believe the dollar amounts that are out there will not significantly impact our student athletes because of the, you know, they're not on TV, you know, they're not um, a um, hero amongst their community per se. Now that happens when there's championships things, you might have some star athletes, but it's not going to corrupt them, if you will. The, The dollar, you know, for my personal opinion, you know, you follow the money where the money is, sometimes that can create some imbalances. So for division three, while we might have some highlights across the country, I don't personally see it that it's going to be unmanageable. It's about division one. Division one. I think there's some real concern of sort of what we mentioned before. Are we going to have student athletes being taken advantage of? Yeah. Um, But I can understand the students, um, wanting to personally benefit from their own talent. The question, the debate is, should they be doing that while they're a student? Um, And some people will say, well, um, they need to wait when they go pro. Well, not every student athlete in Division I goes pro. And so you have a top, um, top student. Sometimes you need to capitalize on when their name, image, and likeness is popular and like star, um, you know, Hollywood stars, you know, um, there goes a bad decision that now you have a student athlete who's affiliated with you that makes some bad decisions um, could affect the, the companies and the, the monies that they're giving them. So for me personally, it's more about can we manage this correctly and focus on the, the purpose is the student athlete experience and the benefit for them personally than it is about the businesses and the institution. So you can tell my division three person through and through. <laughs> I do hear this all the time from folks who are critical of this. They will often say, why doesn't the NFL and the NBA create their own minor leagues and pay for this themselves? What's your perspective on that? Some people say that's exactly what division one athletics is. Um, <laughs> to be to be honest, um, but again, that's not true for all sports. Um, I remember sitting in my master's class, and this will be sort of exposing my ignorance to sport at the time. <laughs> but it was a few decades ago, and we had a professor who was from Australia, and he was challenging the way America offers sport. And he said, "Why are you trying to make your athletes be students here in America?" 
used to be doing what we do in Australia, and they have a heavy presence of clubs, which is what their professional and, and minor league program is. And so their students that attend their university, they don't have athletics as part of higher education like we do in America. And I remember my initial reaction is like, he's crazy, you know, and as I've now had a career in higher education, sometimes I do catch myself pausing with that question. Um, you know, why are we forcing our student athletes to go through higher ed um, in order to go pro? And there are some examples, you know, in football and baseball where that's not happening. Um, but when you think of where they are physically developing it's an important um, tool and a tool and avenue. And for some institutions, it's critical that they have a robust athletic program to operate their, their institutions. At Division One, I, I sort of find it fascinating that they're separate in their funding and athletics needs to find that on their own. And yet they're part of the institution and the institution benefits from it. We're here in Division Three. We're integrated and we're part of the the institution. Um, so it does make me think. Personally, I've said this for probably the last ten years. I've said, you know, in ten years we're going to look very different than we are today, um, primarily because of available funding, both from the institutions. Um, but are we becoming too corporate, too business like, and are we losing our way? Um, You'll also hear on the Division One level how much they, how hard they have to work with some of their students um, to be better students, and they take pride in having their student athletes get a 2.0. Many of our students in Division Three won't even get into the institution with that low of a GPA, and so in America, you know, we're fascinated with sport. We're fascinated with higher ed and its vehicle. Um, I know there's many professors that will question why athletics exist on their campus. Um, but the more they get to know the students um, and their experience, the more, in my opinion, it makes sense in how we're, we're structured. Um, you were talking before about the future of the NCAA. And I feel like right now at this moment in time, um, the future is being shaped because there is a brand new constitution committee that has been assembled. Could you discuss that a little bit? Sure. Um, it was kind of shocking for some of us to receive that um, memo from the president of the association, uh, President Emmert, saying that this new constitution committee was going to get together um, here in August and they're going to provide, I think it's the first time ever, I could be wrong on that, but we're going to have a virtual convention in November um, to hear what their work is. And again, um, discuss it again in January for a complete overall of how we're currently structured. Um, so if I can digress for just a moment, our opening comments talked about how we used to be one association. And then we started dividing into division one, two, and three of how are we different? How can we work independently? And so you'll hear the current structure being referred to as the governance structure of those three divisions. So the proposal now is um, taking a look at that current structure and do we restructure it again? 
And I wish I could tell you that I was a fly on the wall and hearing all those conversations to find out why is it in this moment in time do we want to relook at this um, current way of which we do our, our work as one association. And I think part of that has to do with going back to the Power Five conferences. There's some institutions, particularly at Division One, that want to operate and potentially there's been rumored um, they want to be their, their own and be completely separate. Well, if they're completely separate and they leave the association, so goes millions of dollars. So for the rest of us, then, how do we function and what does that look like? Um, and I think that's where, the, where this um, Constitution Committee is going to be taking a look at that. And they released the list of in- individuals um, just on Monday, I think it was. All three divisions are represented. They've got commissioners. They've got athletic directors. They've got presidents. Um, it's a really good group from the few people that I know that are on that list. So it'll be fascinating discussions that they will have, and I'll be very interested to hear what the proposal is. But I don't have any inside track as to what that might look like, other than there is some real concern um, financially. And I think what came to light is COVID last spring. When you think back to the men's basketball championship that was canceled and what that financial, um, what that meant financially to the association. And was that our, a trigger of a wake up call that we may need to look at this differently to be um, a healthier association to continue, um, at least in the manner of which we're familiar with, or is there a better way? Um, so it'll be interesting because even at the association office, um, due to lack of re, um, revenue that was coming in, they had some early retirements. They had the same experience that we had on our conference on our college campuses of financially, we can't keep doing business the way we're doing business. And that's what that group is going to be charged with. But I don't know what the outcome is going to be. So it'll be very interesting to see what gets shared here in the coming months. I was fascinated, though, about how fast and how quickly they're going to work, which tells me there's probably some framework that's already started to be created. When you saw that Texas and Oklahoma were going to join the SEC, your reaction? My reaction is good luck. Um, You know, I think about does that affect me and my life? Probably not directly. So I moved back and put my head in the sand and work, work for Wilson. Um, so it is fascinating when things such as that does come up um, nationally, given the alumni base, and you would think sometimes that the world is going to end um, with those decisions. And I, I chuckle sometimes, and chuckling may not be the right word, but um, uh, it's fascinating to me to, to listen to some alums of those associations and how they – are so passionate about that. And it comes out with, even if you're going to change your logo or you're going to change conferences, you know, it's usually alum that had lived in the past and change is hard for us in athletics. And yet it's coming at rapid fire. Um, and it has to do with uh, more often than not finances now. Um, and what role did that play in that, in that decision? So, um, Interesting times, interesting rivalries um, that are created. They make for good national television. 
um, I don't live in that world. <laughs> um, I enjoy watching the game, but the, the passion, you know, for me, it's about, um, ribbing my neighbor, um, who's a Penn state fan. And I grew up in Wisconsin. So it's about bragging rights. Um, but I know others are, are much more passionate in, in those decisions. Well, you talked about like, you know, the big schools breaking away and forming their own thing. Right. I remember a few years ago when conferences started realigning, there was this panic that, oh my gosh, it's happening now. What to me, what it seems like is it is happening just as a lot, a lot slower pace than we thought, but it is happening. Like they're breaking away. It seems like. Right. It, 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 it is. And the, and the other thing that I would say to that about um, changing conferences, that's a real thing for us, even in division three. So for us to get an automatic qualifier to a championship, you need at least seven member institutions in that mm -hmm. particular sport. And our current conference just experienced that. We had one member depart, go to a neighboring conference, and that meant two of our women's sports were not going to um, be able to maintain their automatic qualifier to the championship. So our presidents are scrambling to fill that gap, you know, and do you do it with associate members? You got to have a member institution of of like minds within a geographic footprint that financially makes sense. Um, so yes, it happens at division one, but it's also happening um, in smaller conferences as well of what's a manageable number, what's too big, what's it going to cost, how long it's going to drive. I mean, we drive, we don't fly. Um, so it's happening across the country and it comes down to sometimes of where's our good recruiting footprint. The school that left our conference went to uh, one that was going to be in a more metropolitan area, and we're told that one of the big motivators was their recruiting footprint. Mm -hmm. So it, it's all connected in how those decisions are, are being made. Lawrence, do you want to know my reaction to Texas and Oklahoma moving I'm dying to the SEC? Because I know you had your, your ear to the ground. Go ahead. I did. And I'd like to know why it is now they want to join the Securities and Exchange Commission because they really should have been a part of that earlier. Yes. Uh, that's mm -hmm. uh, insight from Allie Dagnus. Thank you very much. I'll be here all week. Sportball insight. <laughs> okay. So um, can you speak a little bit to how different athletic programs that you know of and and that you are familiar with are dealing with the threat of COVID, even as we thought it was going to be going away. Now the Delta variant is back and is ripping its way through college campuses around the country. Just busting through the wall like the Kool-Aid man. Right. Exactly. That's a pretty good visual, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so if you don't mind, I could step back into last spring when we were, were sure. dealing with just the pandemic starting to to take over what that meant for athletics. Um, it was like cutting our legs off. Oh. Like, what do you mean there's no championship? You know, first in the winter and then our spring sports. It was, you know, not only financially devastating, um, I was associated with a program that when that decision was being made, we could not take a trip to Hawaii, of which our student athletes raised all the funds for. Oh, oh that is so, heartbreaking. You know, That's it, terrible. Right. So, the pain and the tears that we experienced last spring were real. So then we moved into last academic year and trying to continue to navigate what seemed to be 
changing protocols every two weeks in different institutions. You know, are we going to be open? Are we hybrid? Are we all online? You know, what are we doing? And everybody doing different things to try to manage it because the pandemic was affecting their immediate community differently. You know, what's the right thing, including our public schools um, for our young people. So I think there was this sense of security um, early in the spring that we were now past it. And you only heard the little rumblings of the, of the Delta and other variants. I would say it was probably the early July that I started to get real anxious of like, don't tell me it's going to happen again. So while we're rolling out plans for opening this fall, um, there is part of us from an administrative perspective that deal with this weekly. You know, you're dealing with your local communities, your campus constituency, your conference members, you know, what is the best thing to be doing? So we've been trying to follow all the guidelines. You're making those decisions, but we have the NCAA in the background also giving us guidance. And so now that the vaccine has been um, readily available, we did not get guidance until August 4th. Whoa. And there's one track of guidelines for those that are vaccinated and a different track for those that are unvaccinated. So that creates different testing protocols um, for each institution. If that's your, your Bible, which is typically your minimum guidelines, institutions always have the right to, to be more stringent if they would so choose. So as we prepare for their arrival next week, you can imagine how our student athletes are feeling. What that means on our campus is those that are vaccinated are kind of on the fast track. They're, they're not going to have the same level of testing requirements. Those unvaccinated are going to be tested three times a week. Some students want no interest in being tested that regularly for whatever their reason may, may be. Could be the, the swab in the brain they don't want. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't want that three times a week. It does either. hurt. Yeah, it's awful. You know, and I think for me personally, what's more troubling is this particular variant is really going after our specific age group of students that we serve. And so I kind of have a deep breath right now, and I don't know if we can exhale until we get through the school year. You know, is what is the percentage of college students coming to our campuses and are they vaccinated? Um, there's real concerns. I mean, we've got some institutions across the country, all divisions, all sizes that are requiring vaccinations. Others are not. Um, and so for those that are not, you're dealing with those that are vaccinated and those not. And hopefully um, we can create cultures where those decisions are respected and it doesn't become a political football and um um, not treating each other well because somebody may choose not to be vaccinated. I, I really hope that that ugliness that we've seen out in social media land or perhaps in our own neighborhoods um, don't come to campus. So we need to prepare, be prepared for that. But um, we're, we have our plans in place. We're ready to go and our fingers are crossed. I was particularly proud of our campus um, we did not have a COVID shutdown last spring. Um, many institutions did, which took them offline for two weeks. 
um, which is why the association had given us blanket waivers. We didn't need to meet our minimum number of contests. Um, we could stop some sports altogether if we wanted to. Well, those waivers do not exist this year currently. So for us to advance and maintain our membership, we need to hit those, those minimums. Now, if it becomes unruly, maybe those waivers will come back. But currently, we need to stay healthy to play the minimum number of contests that we need um, to be able to be eligible for championships and meet our sponsorship and membership obligations to be a member of the NCAA. So my fingers and toes are crossed for a healthy um, year, not only in our campus, but across the country. Tina, this has been so interesting. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your insight and your wisdom and everything that you brought to us today. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. It was a joy to talk with both of you this afternoon, and it's always great to talk about athletics and particularly our students. So I hope your listeners um, learned a little bit this afternoon, and we can always revisit these topics um, once again. So thank you for the invitation. It was very gracious for both of you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows, and more. That's utterlymoderatenetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, we'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing the song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.